0: In this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast.
1: And then when you're constantly being bombarded with pollution, um, on top of the food that you're eating, which is not evolutionary for you, you your defenses go down, down, down. Your threat responses are constantly up. And at the end of the day, when your immune system is looking for a fight, it will find one. So you'll find that this is actually a, a dysregulation of a beautiful system And so your histamine, histaminergic system or your hay fever symptoms or whatever it is, is actually a sign that your body's trying to help you.
0: Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal is pretty simple. To bring you both sides of the story in a cancel culture world where open conversation seems to be nearly impossible, especially in the sciences, I hope to bridge the gap between ancestral living and modern medicine, using the best from both worlds to inform how modern humans should live for optimal health and wellness. By interviewing experts in the fields of evolutionary biology, neuroscience, metabolism, exercise physiology, epigenetics, and beyond, I hope to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Live Demo well podcast. Uh, A few announcements here before we get into the interview with Dr. Leslar. So number one, the one I'm really the most excited about is that after hundreds of hours and after probably thousands of researchers that I've looked into and I've analyzed the work of, my book is finally going to be live in a couple of weeks. Now, if you've been following the podcast, if you've been following my Instagram, you probably know that I released an ebook version of it. Um, about a year ago now. But I've been making some major updates to it. It's gone from a little document that was 12 pages and is now a document that's about 186 pages. So needless to say, I've made some very, very important edits to it. And as I've written the book, it's, it's made me realize some of my biases. It's made me realize that at the beginning of writing the book, I wasn't living up to the standards which I was preaching about in the book and that made me really take a step back and as i wrote it every single sentence that i wrote i became increasingly more rigorous i i set a higher standard for myself and i hope that that will show through in the book but what is it about you know why would you even want to get it first of all it's a comprehensive guide to healthy living it's it covers virtually everything from nutrition to sleep optimization to emf exposure and mitigation to light exposure and how that affects health, and many more factors, lifestyle and environmental. And then I talk about something that I think is very, very interesting, and specifically because I think a lot of health professionals and even people who, you know, just everyone who had an opinion about COVID, right, they kind of had these talking points that went a little like this. Well, if you're healthy, then you're definitely not going to get hit by covid, right? And at the beginning I sort of just believed them because it was convenient for me to not look at the data, right? But I never saw anyone, no one ever put this together into a single coherent document that would actually show that that was true. And so I've done that. And it's taken me a long time and I've been really really on myself about not letting these biases show through and really objectively looking at what i think to be the highest truth at least from what i can see now and i've had it reviewed by several doctors and several health professionals and they seem to agree as well so that's what i've done i've i've really compiled a list of the environmental and lifestyle factors which impact your risk of severe covid-19 but also more than that how these lifestyle factors are crucial for living a better life in general, not just COVID-19. Obviously, I know that COVID-19 has been the focus of our lives for the past two years, but there are other problems than COVID. And it's not to say that COVID isn't a serious issue, but it's to say that if you do some of these these lifestyle interventions and you really work on getting yourself healthy and better, a lower risk of COVID-19 is just one of the many, many benefits that you will reap. But some of the other ones are obviously, you know, lowering your risk of many chronic diseases that we face in the the United States. I'll also be talking about the benefits and the limitations of the current vaccines. And there are two real problems that I've seen, which have been really blatant during the pandemic. One is scientism, you know, people who are holding on to a belief under the disguise that you are, quote unquote, following the science, when in reality, you're just confirming your biases by not looking at the full picture. There's also another side of the story, which, you know, I have to admit that a few years ago, I fell prey to this, the Back to Nature movement. And while I consider myself an advocate of ancestral health and ancestral living, it's reached a point where some of these people denounce anything and everything related to modern medicine. I think this is a disservice to say the least to science and is also a disservice to reality because it's just not true we can have both we can take the best from modern medicine while also mentioning its limitations which has really not been done well during this pandemic and we can also look at what's wrong with the ancestral health movement what are some of the limitations of that and in order to do that i really dove deep into the research on modern hunter-gatherer populations and what some of the data show about their lives and how their lives could actually be improved by modern medicine, but also some of the learning lessons that we as a first world nation can learn from these types of populations, and we can learn a lot. And finally, I hope to share some of my biases when I began to write this book and how I learned to navigate a terrain of misinformation and half-truths. Now... Before we get into it, let's talk real quickly about the show sponsors. So I want to thank Thrive Market because I've personally been a member, my family and I have been members of Thrive Market for a while now, and as you've heard, you already know that I love this company because they're on a mission to make healthy living accessible and affordable for everyone. When you buy from Thrive Market, you're going to be saving 25 to 50% off on the retail price that you'd find in a physical health food store near you. And the membership is affordable. It's the price of a cup of coffee per month. And on average, you make back what you spend on membership in savings after just two orders. And you can get everything, from cosmetics and supplements to frozen wild-caught fish, grass-fed beef, and non-toxic household products. Did I mention it ships straight to your door? Well, it does. If you want to make eating healthier not only more affordable, but more convenient and delicious, I urge you to try Thrive Market risk-free for a month and get 25% off of your first order and a gift of up to $24 in value. And if you don't like it, no worries. You can get a full refund of your membership. And also for a limited time, you can get the Thrive Market Cookbook, which includes over 60 recipes made by 20 nutrition experts and chefs and is now one of the free gifts available with a purchase of a new membership. Our second sponsor is Spectra. Now, these are the first blue light blocking glasses I ever bought because, one, as you probably know by now, my sleep absolutely sucked for a very long time, and it's something that I still struggle with at times, and this was really my first, my first quote-unquote biohacking tool that I ever used in order to better my sleep. I also bought them because they're incredibly affordable. They're, they're not only effective, but they are one of the most well-priced blue light blocking glasses that I've found. And of course, they actually work because you can't just have something that's cheap but not work. These block virtually all the frequencies of light which disrupt melatonin release. If you picture a sunset, that's exactly what it looks like when you put these on. And that's what should happen. It should block 100% of blue light, most of green light, and only really leave you with red and, uh, you know, orangish type of, of colors. And yeah, they may be goofy looking, but I use them about an hour or two before bedtime, so I'm not really concerned about looking like a dork in my pajamas at 9pm. So you can get 10% off your entire order using code Well if you go to Spectra, and the link will be in the description. Now let's get into my episode with Dr. Leslar. All right, Dr. Leslar, you cover a lot of different topics on your Instagram, which is how I found you. So- Let's start by discussing some of the work that you do when you do consults or work with patients in your practice. What are some of the most common health problems that you see?
1: Oh, Okay, so I've kind of set myself up as a complex chronic condition doctor. Patients tend to come to me when they've seen a few other doctors and then still not quite sure why they're sick. Um, and one of the clinics that I consult out of, called Singulum Health in Sydney, is specifically a brain health optimization center. So there I do a lot of neurodegen, psych, you know, brain fitness, basically. So it actually does depend on where the patients find me. And that's how um, I delineate my practice as well. But essentially, it's um, word of mouth. So a lot of the time, the patients will be. Coming to me for complex chronic conditions. Got it. Uh, whether it's, yeah. So, um, for example, my entire practice yesterday um, was SARS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, mold injury. Um, I had a dementia patient um, and I had an allergy patient. So it's quite varied.
0: Okay. Do you work with anyone who has long COVID?
1: Oh, okay. Getting into the weeds already, right? So um, I'm actually quite friendly and um, with NCNED, which is the National Centre for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases. It's part of Griffith University here on the Gold Coast. Um, They're actually supporting an adjunct position of mine, so I'm applying for that. And they're doing long COVID research at the moment. So yeah, yeah, We're we're definitely seeing a little bit of that, but. We're lucky, you know, we just didn't see that much COVID in Australia. So our population size is quite small.
0: Right, right. Yeah. No, the reason I ask, I just interviewed a um, a doctor out of the UK who dealt with people who had long COVID and specifically looking at the histamine side of it. So she would look for, um, you know, specific um, stressors in the environment, for example, like mold, which can activate histamine, or you know, even like a, over-exercising, uh, endurance um, type training will release histamine, um, and foods obviously will release histamine. And she says that that has like a large role in um, the development of long COVID.
1: Well, long COVID is actually a post-viral syndrome, and actually, so it's very similar or has many of the characteristics of ME/CFS, and you know, to a certain extent, that hopefully means that more research is going to go into MECFS. Um, here at Griffith University, the researchers were the ones that, came, that um, sort of realized that TRPM3, which is the transient receptor membrane potential M3, um, one of the threat receptors basically, wasn't functioning as well. In ME/CFS patients, and that's why some for some subset of patients, low dose naltrexone or LDN um, inhibits a opioid receptor, which inhibits trpm three, and so that's one of the um, one of the treatment modalities that we're using for ME/CFS patients slash post viral syndrome slash long COVID. Yeah. So histamine. Look, I. Th- I think because, you know, histamine intolerance has been a big deal now for about five or six years since it came to the consciousness of the Mm -hmm. average practitioner. Um, It definitely has something to say about it. It really does affect, for example, um, sleep patterns, um, tolerance to foods. It can make PMS syndromes worse. Um, but I, I think the, definitely the long COVID is so multifactorial and we're only just discovering, you know, every day, there's just something new that's coming up about it, you know?
0: Right. Of course. Yeah. No, um, that was one of the things which, as I started to dig into some of the research really shocked me It's just, it's not just like a vitamin D deficiency. It's not just like one thing. It's so many things put together that make it so hard to pinpoint an exact cause.
1: Yeah. Like, like most complex chronic conditions, right. Unfortunately, the way that uh, medicine is set up at the moment, it's, you know, when we're doing our RCTs, for example, you can only test one thing or two, if you're lucky, three, maybe if you, you know, but essentially it's really hard to test programs. So for example, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is very well known for the Alzheimer's protocol uh, recode, he found it extremely hard to to trial his program, because he couldn't get approval to do a intervention that was so varied, that looked at lifestyle and food and supplementation, and it's like, no, if you want to do a study, you have to do one intervention, one drug, one supplement, and that's just not how life works, you know?
0: Right, of course, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about histamine because you you mentioned briefly that it has to do with um, wakefulness, like sleep cycles. Can you get into that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So actually it depends on which of the histamine receptors you're talking about and where those histamine receptors are too. Plus it's a threshold thing. So there are four histamine receptors, H1, H2, H3, H4. And most people would know an antihistamine is something that helps clear them up, you know, from a snuffy nose or something like that. And those ones, generally speaking, act um, on the H1 and H2 receptors. I think most people don't realize, that most lay people don't realize that histamine, antihistamines don't actually break down histamine. They stop the activation of the receptor by the histamine molecule. So in other words, when you are constantly on H1 and H2 blockers, you still have all this histamine flying around in your body, but nobody yet has been able to tell me what happens to over-activation of H3 and H4. Um, I think that this is a big deal simply because H3 is found in bone marrow, for example, and the use, the promiscuous use of antihistamines back in the day, 10, 20 years ago um, is now sort of biting us in the bum because um, the older generation antihistamines have been now linked with uh, dementias. You know, they've got this anticholinergic effect as well. So as far as wakefulness goes, the histaminergic system in the brain um, is one that would essentially keep you awake. The Interesting thing that we have in immunology at about three o'clock or so is something called the witching hour, where you have a normal dip in cortisol before the slow rise that wakes you up. And you have a normal rise or apex of histamine in your system. So, as your previous guests had talked about, you know, the foods that you eat can make a massive difference because if you have a, a big histamine histamine-loaded dinner, for example, Mm -hmm. and you have this normal rise of histamine and you're slowly breaking down histamine in your body when you're sleeping, come three o'clock, you actually tip beyond that normal apex and you push yourself into wakefulness because histamine is going to keep you awake. Now, there are some centrally acting histaminergic drugs that do actually sedate you as well. But again, it depends on where the histamine um, where the histamine receptors are and, and what the load is as well.
0: Interesting. So histamine then increases cortisol levels.
1: Histamine has a relationship with cortisol levels, but not absolutely directly. Got it. So in this particular, in this particular case, the scenario is saying that's just a, the natural dip that's happening with your, with regards to your body, you know, so the, and that's why Um, Even cortisol is very important for sleep and wakefulness because if you don't have a good enough dip, if the delta of change, how the slope of increase of cortisol is not quite right, your your waking up patterns go off. Hence the whole cortisol awakening response is the measure of how much cortisol increases in your body after you wake up. There's a, a medley of chemicals at play when you are asleep, and when you wake up, and nobody actually knows every single piece to that puzzle, which is why sleep science, you know, thanks to people like Matthew Walker, right. is becoming so popular. <laughs> and, um, and, and thank goodness, we now know how important it is. Because I remember back when I was at uni, it was a big deal for us to um, stay up late and get all your work done and you know if you went to sleep you were a loser or you know you couldn't hack it or those sorts of ridiculous notions whereas now to be protective of your sleep is actually to be protective of your brain and you you know eventually do better long term because of that
0: yeah I I have a few things to to talk to you about Dr. Matthew Walker. Um but first I first I wanted to um so one of the things that my previous guest mentioned is um using some antihistamines like uh like quercetin for example. Um, I'm not sure exactly the mechanism of action of that but then the, you're the first person who I think has made the important distinction that maybe something like quercetin could just block the receptors but not actually degrade the histamine. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that you're concerned about with, with those type of antihistamines?
1: No, because quercetin, along with vitamin C, B6, copper, magnesium, and calcium are actually also mast cell stabilizers. So the mast cell is a type of white blood cell, which actually degranulates chemicals, including IL-6, histamine. And so what they do is that they help this, the, the mast cell not be as brittle. A mast cell is a white blood cell that essentially it's there to protect us. We get the symptoms of hay fever and other uncomfortable symptoms mm-hmm. here because these are your guardian sites. If something is going to get into the body to cause us grief, it's going to get in through this area because your skin is meant to be integumentary. It's meant to be you know, foolproof basically. It's not, nothing's going to get in unless you have a cut. So that's why we have extra mast cells or extra white blood cells, you know, around the eyes, the nose, the mouth. And when you breathe in, for example, a pollen and your body goes, whoa, what's that? It will do everything in its power to prevent what it thinks is an enemy from entering your lungs. So it'll increase mucus to wrap itself around the, the pollen. It'll make you sneeze. Um, it'll swell up because it's bringing more of its friends um, to the fight. And it's going to possibly even cause you a little bit of constriction here so that you don't breathe it further into your lungs. I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful evolutionary primal um, mechanism to save us. And so for people who have very poor gut health, who... Are living so far from their evolutionary life that you're constantly getting threats all the time. You know, you're in a sympathetic dominance, you know, you're, you're constantly fighting with someone at work, you're constantly fighting with someone at home. And so these, these people tend to have exaggerated threat responses. And then when you're constantly being bombarded with pollution, um, on top of the food that you're eating, which is not evolutionary for you. You know, your defenses go down, down, down. Your threat responses are constantly up. And at the end of the day, when your immune system is looking for a fight, it will find one. So you'll find that this is actually a, a dysregulation of a beautiful system. And so your histamine histaminergic system or your hay fever symptoms or whatever it is, is actually a sign that your body's trying to help you you know, and when it when it goes out of whack, you have to ask why, as opposed to, oh, so annoying, take antihistamines, take more drugs. No, like, what is your body trying to tell you? What, how is it a reflection of your inability to cope with the stressors of life right now? Because that changes, obviously, right? And how is your gut health reflected in the in these responses too?
0: right and not not to throw too much crap on modern allopathic medicine, but that's pretty much the you know that's the traditional approach it's viewing the body as if it's sort of broken and the only thing you can do is mend it by basically numbing some of the symptoms that you get
1: yeah yeah and you know i i I understand absolutely the roots of that you know because the average person was generally speaking fit and robust and so when they were not fit and robust you would just patch them up because they'd get over their little hump well they get over the little hump or they die but anyway you get over their little hump um and they go back to being fit and robust and working in the fields and you know this and that so i see where it it comes from and that's why the new wave of complex chronic conditions multifactorial you can't just put a band-aid on it you know um is certainly rising and i and why it needs a newer approach from medicine, not just just, integrative practitioners or naturopaths or whoever, allopathic medicine too. We've got doctors have so much to offer. It's just a different way of approaching a problem that we have to um, embrace, learn.
0: Yeah, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper on what you just said, um, that people, you know, for the most part used to be more fit and healthy than we are now. And obviously, this is a huge point of contention among people who are more, you know, still in the modern allopathic side and versus people who are more on like the ancestral health side. Um, you know, the, the argument against, um, you know, living like our ancestors is, oh, but they died so early, right? But then as I started to look look into that, it's like, okay, is that really true? What's really true is that the mean, the mean was pretty low, right? And that was partially because of high death rate at birth. But if they got I past think. that, then they actually lived a pretty healthy life into their seventies.
1: Absolutely. So that's, I, I embrace that too. I am not an anthropologist. I, I, I don't, I, I you know, I, I don't study this to the depth that those people do, but certainly right. that's my understanding as well, because it is I find it very hard to understand why anyone thinks that the way to a long and healthy life um, is to put drugs in people. You know, absolutely, of course, they're so handy when we need them. Absolutely. Right. right? But nobody wanders around with a statin deficiency. Nobody wanders around with a Panadol deficiency. You know, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous. So, um, the way I see it as well and at least the opinion that I right now uh, am choosing to embrace is indeed uh, ancestrally um, if you made it past childhood and if you didn't die to acute infections you live you live pretty well you know and it's not just about living long and you and I both know that and everyone likes to talk about living long you know we've got people live, you know surviving in uh, Age nursing homes and aged care homes now, who aren't living. Yes. They're being kept alive, and they're unwell, and they have a million pills that's being washed down them, and yeah, they live till they're hundred ninety, but is that what we want as a society? So no, and I'm pretty sure most people would say no. I'm pretty sure most people would say no. I'd rather be robust and fit and ancestrally that's what we see right that people were slim or rather they were of healthy weight whatever that may be they were able to be mobile and move and think in ways that we don't see as well now I don't think in general
0: right are you familiar with um Weston A. Price's work
1: yeah yeah I love Weston A. Price's work yeah right um and so, oh, actually.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I prepared this earlier. Um, no, you, um, so <clears throat> Western A. Price's work is exactly where I go to when I'm talking to patients who are concerned about fertility, pregnancy optimization, child health optimization, um, the number of children who have issues, you know, Even something really simple, like, oh, my kid's very fussy. I think that that's a clue for us. If a child is fussy, and it's not because, oh, Mary doesn't eat strawberries, so therefore I don't want to eat strawberries, apart from that, if they're constantly saying no to something or picking some um, particular types of foods, that actually gives us a clue as to what's happening with their gut microbiome. So um, you know, a few years ago, I was reading about the fact that there are some children on the um, ASD, with ASD, Mm -hmm. the the spectrum, who, for example, preference white foods. And for ages, it was a case of, oh, it's because of the color or whatever it may be. But there was also something to be said about the fact that white foods, generally speaking, tend to be processed. And processed foods are much easier for children who've got very poor gut diversity to um, break down and consume because it doesn't give them pain when they eat it. Um, and when they're so young and unable to express the fact that if they eat a bit of meat, they get a tummy upset or anything like that. Mm-hmm. After a while, it's a very learned subconscious behavior. So if your child is craving certain foods or rejecting certain foods, it, it's it's sometimes it's a clue.
0: That's fascinating. I've never heard of that
1: and and you know the older people get the more that they uh, succumb to things like marketing and all that so it doesn't quite work but um for, for kids yeah i try to i try to at least observe that because i want to know is that a clue or um is is that just a, a, a preference because their friend said so or they saw it ad on tv or whatever
0: yeah no that's something that i talked about um I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Stasha Gomenak's work. She's um, a neurologist. Yeah, she she has Mm -hmm. some fascinating theories about um, sleep, gut microbiome. um, And I interviewed her a while ago now. And that's one of the things that she was mainly, you know, emphasizing was that abnormal gut microbiomes, which are now kind of normal, I would say, um, you know, gut issues are very, very prevalent. And a part of that is because, um, you know, vitamin D levels and B vitamins, um, and passing that down through even, you know, generationally, um, not just in like nutritionally, but you know, in, in certain habits, like not going outside, um, not being in nature,
1: Be constantly being disconnected from the earth, wearing right. shoes, being on a bed and not on the ground. Absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah. Could you could you talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like because you're you're referring to grounding, but I think most people are still kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like um, (laughs) the reason that I got into that was because I worked a little bit with the Environmental Health Trust um, and they do a lot of great work. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, So there's one thing I definitely speak to most patients about. It doesn't matter what illness they come to me with. And that is about trying to re-establish connection with the, I was about to say the earth, and it sounds so woo and left the field. (laughs) But the main thing about that is that it's paper cuts to your system. And it's death by a thousand paper cuts. In other words, you're constantly putting your brain in a situation where it can't trust itself. So if you are walking on the beach, skin can feel the the wavelength of light hitting it so it knows it's daytime can feel the heat can see the sand can hear the sea but it can't feel it and it's it it knows that the organism is walking forward right one foot in front of the other and it doesn't trust itself because it's you you know the majority of our survival and procreation drives are, are primitive. It's your lizard brain. And your lizard brain is going, what's happening? I don't know. For the average person that makes very little difference, if any at all. But when you are already in a sympathetic dominance because you are you know, living in the first world and living in a city and all the rest, then you're constantly being assaulted with chemicals perfect perfumes and 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 car exhaust and day to day the one thing that you are meant to do is locomotion going from a to b and during that locomotion your brain doesn't quite understand why it cannot feel the ground in an appropriate way it will do i mean there is no free lunch your body will do something so the idea is, you know, L4, L5, S1, the um, parts of your spine, and that's the nerves that come out from that area actually innervate the bottom of your feet. So part of what the body does, um, and this is, you know, Dr. Perry Nicholson's type stuff, is that it will give you, it will try to restrict locomotion, try to restrict movement because it's trying to keep you safe. What's that? That's lower back pain. That's lower back pain. L4, L5, S1, which everybody suffers. Is it just a brain being confusing? Of course, it's not. It's the fact that we're all sitting down all the time and you know this, that, and the other. But again, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, All these little things mean nothing in and of itself, but you put it all together and you've got a very sick organism. So okay. I have a big deal with my patients whereby please help your, your brain to retrust itself. Help your brain to retrust the body. Help your body to trust your brain again. That is appropriate signaling. If you're, if you're walking on grass, you want to see the grass, you want to feel the grass. If you're out in the sun and you can tell that it's daylight, right? Don't put sunglasses on. You're confusing the brain. Be under shade, it's different from being having sunglasses on because your your brain. Is just a, your brain is really simple. It needs to know, am I safe? And then, you know, can I procreate? Like, is it a safe? Am I safe? It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if it doesn't feel safe, it'll start to do funny things to try and keep you safe in the way, in the way that it knows how.
0: I love that. That might be the, the title of this podcast episode, by the way, death by a thousand <laughs> paper cuts. <laughs> um, but how, how exactly does grounding um, kind of contribute to um, better health? Mm.
1: I think that, um, you know, it's a very, it sounds like a very woo concept or put your bare feet on the ground, all that kind of thing. In all my um, reports to my patients, I do, um, I actually do have two references to two journals about grounding, about the fact that it decreases inflammatory Molecules and that we've that they've taken blood and they've seen. Right? If you actually ground yourself, that's what happens. Okay. I was speaking to a patient a few months ago now, and she he actually worked for um, Queensland Health, which is a government body that looks after the um, public healthcare system here. And I was telling him about round, grounding, and he goes, "Oh yeah." So the radiology companies actually used to advise their staff. I don't know if they still do it now, but certainly they did in, in the past. They would actually advise their staff, especially if they're working in areas with a lot of radiation, CT scans and all that, to actually go outside, get in the sun, take their shoes off and ground themselves because they <laughs> used to help. And that's the idea apparently is negative electrons fro- flowing out from the earth into the body, right? Um, and it's just such a simple thing that even if it's not for the express purpose of decreasing inflammatory molecules, increasing negative electrons into your body from the earth, there is definitely something to be said about taking the time out, taking your shoes off, getting your feet on the ground and standing in the sun in fresh air. And the the one thing that, I do feel I have to constantly remind myself as well as talk to patients about is that because of the way modern medicine has been set up, trying to chase that new fancy drug, that new fancy intervention and get scalpel to skin that we forget that the basics of health are what we do day to day, how we breathe, how we eat, how we sleep, how we move and how we think. And, but that's not sexy, you know, it's kind of not like you, you, even if you want to talk to someone about breathing, you got to sexify it up. You got to talk about Wim Hof, you know, mm-hmm. and, and don't get me wrong. I love Wim Hof, right? <laughs> but actually breathe through your nose, try and breathe through your diaphragm, try and take longer breaths, even really simple things like this, make a huge huge uh, and I'm from first first-hand experience huge difference so back when I was younger I was um, I was quite sick all the time I had hay fever and asthma and I was always snotty and uncomfortable and you know I really poor sleep and um, you know growing up I then wound up with issues with my periods and then when I was in my 20s and 30s I had fertility issues anyway knock on knock on right and Back then, I was made to believe that it was my genes, i.e. inevitable, i.e. very fatalistic, you know, kind of it is what it is. There's nothing you can do to change it type of mentality, right? No one actually said those words. But when you say to someone, oh, blah, 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 it's in your genes. What does that mean? You know, of floating along the river of life, a victim to your genes. Like it's just so come on. So
0: hopeless. Anyway,
1: Yeah, so hopeless. And um, when I was in my, I think I was in my 30s or early 30s, it was, um, I got Invisalign to straighten my teeth. Um, And because I had this thing in my mouth all the time, I was unconsciously, subconsciously biting down on it. And because of that, I accidentally retrained myself to breathe through my nose, which I never did. I used to be an absolute mouth breather. And that changed my life. I was no longer getting my monthly sore throats. Like it used to be a bit of a joke that if someone had a sore throat in the next suburb that I would get sick. Mm. You know, and because I wasn't getting my monthly sore throats, I wasn't having antibiotics two, three times a year um, for my tonsillitis. Um, You know, it's changed the shape of my face. Um, I'm definitely getting better sleep. It's just breathing (laughs) so but it certainly has informed my practice so I'm so grateful for that experience
0: yeah that that was me as well actually I I don't think I remember from elementary school up until you know late high school every single year at least once I would have strep throat oh
1: yes right but was it actually strep you know
0: so I'm not sure if they knew always, or they just kind of gave me antibiotics just because they're like, ah, it's something there in the back of your throat. Let me give you some antibiotics. Um, yep. yeah,
1: so yes, yeah, so I'm not sure. It's the same. It's the same with, um, so many patients that I see now where they have sore throats and at some point it was strep, mm-hmm. but then now every time they have a sore throat, it's strep throat, but they've not actually had a swab in donkeys. And it's the same with women with UTIs where I've got, I, I, I get chronic UTIs. Well, what does that mean? Oh, I get UTIs every you know, month or so, whatever it may be. It's like, okay, when was the last time you actually had a urine sample, which demonstrated like big numbers of these bugs? Oh, no, I haven't. But it's the same feeling. Yeah, interstitial cystitis feels the same way. That's an inflammatory condition, not an infectious condition. And you're taking antibiotics. Oh, but the antibiotics work. Yes, because antibiotics have an anti-inflammatory effect. So I'm not against antibiotics. Antibiotics are one of our biggest triumphs medically, absolutely. But you you can't give it out like candy. It's not candy. It's antibiotics, right? And you shouldn't be taking a medication if you don't need it. And that's why, you know, doctors like. Um, uh, you know, Dr. Asim Mulhatra, the the British cardiologist. You know, and he's not a he's not against statins. He's against frivolous, promiscuous statin prescriptions, right? And that's kind of how I'm modeling my practice as well. It's like absolutely, you'll get a medication if you need it. the The caveat there is if you need it,
0: right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, I think, one of the main themes I've seen throughout. Um, well, it's been more pronounced, I guess. More things have been pronounced throughout the pandemic um, in terms of people's opinions, obviously. And one of the things have been, um, you know, the abuse of modern medicine. It's not that, like you said, there have been like incredible triumphs. Like, that's why we have a mean Um, life expectancy which is much longer than we used to have um, because of modern medicine like surgeries and, and, and antibiotics and things like that but when we start to abuse them that's when it can potentially become problematic
1: yeah when we no longer believe in an innate ability to heal you know there's you always need to adjunct it somehow you always need to add something to it whereby I, that I do have patients where if you, this is back when I was sort of doing more general medicine, but they'd ask for antibiotics when they were sick. But more than likely, the statistics are that your, you know, whatever cold sign, your, your, your issues that you're having are more than likely going to be viral. The antibiotic is not going to work. Oh, well, you know, just in case. No, <laughs> but patients, Patients have those attitudes because we've, the doctors, we've fostered those attitudes. You know, patients feel that they are hopeless unless they see a a doctor who then gives them something um, to take, to fix them. Otherwise, patients have lost their autonomy. They've lost their sense of, you know, being able to help themselves along. Honestly, for... So many patients, you you don't need to see a functional medicine doctor or an integrative doctor. You know, yes, they have issues with their, or, or, you know, their regular GP or whatever it is. They haven't found um, help in an allopathy, and I get that's why they wind up seeing an integrative medicine doctor. But this is not for everyone. But a lot, a lot of the time, you can get yourself to a certain state of health or certain state of healing without seeing anyone, just by focusing on some really basic things. But people are driven to, to see a doctor because they want a prescription. It doesn't matter if the prescription is breathe better, move better, sleep better, eat better. They still want that prescription. And part of it is patients have lost their they've lost trust in themselves and we've we've basically medicine i feel including naturopathy integrative medicine whatever it is but we i feel like we've beaten it out of people you know it's like as if we're the gatekeepers to health and that's why i kind of welcome the rise of biohackers because these are citizen scientists who have taken their health into their own hands now of course, there is a safe way to do everything and not so safe way to do everything. Right. And we, of course, have to um, acknowledge and, and acknowledge that. But just like how there are some doctors who know nothing about health and everything about drugs. Same with biohackers, right? Yes, you're experimenting on yourself with food and movement and all the rest and it's fantastic. But, you know, and, and it's, it can be, it's, it can seem exciting or sexy or fun to experiment with um, peptides or... Uh, nootropics or whatever, but of course to be safe and to understand that biohackers also have a responsibility to the many people who listen to them, that they are repeatedly tell uh, you know repeating the mantra that you need to be safe, and you need to make sure that you're doing things in a way that's not going to put yourself in any jeopardy because it's not worth it because. The fundamentals of health do not require BPC-157, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, you know, I've definitely seen, um, it's interesting that you say that because I've seen people who are much less open-minded than you are, um, doctors and health professionals who are very, um, you know, they hold a lot of disdain for people who are, who are doing that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and that, it, so I see a lot of cancer patients, and this is particularly bad with cancer patients. And that mm. is, my, my mother died of cancer. So I'm just very intimate with this. But if you're fighting for your life, the, 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 the absolute number one question that every cancer patient asks, not just of me, but of their oncologist is, what can I do? Mm. And they are constantly told by many oncologists, there's nothing you can do, right? Just make sure that you come back for your chemotherapy, do your radiotherapy, cut that tumor out. But there's nothing you can do with food or don't take supplements that's really dangerous or whatever it is, even though the truth is not that at all, mm-hmm. right? I'm talking Apex journals, um, blue ribbon journals, who will, which will talk about, melatonin as being an adjunct to some brain cancer, chemotherapies, curcumin, um, quercetin even, whatever it is, there is definitely information out there for adjuncts. There is definitely information out there for the utility of diets for cancer, whether it's keto or pulse keto or AIP or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Stop taking away patients' sense of self. Stop taking away their autonomy, right? Because you'll very happily tell the average patient who walks into a GP practice, oh, eat well and don't forget to exercise. Because that's what we're taught in, in, in GP, right? That you tell everyone to eat well and exercise, even though most doctors in general don't actually know what that means. That's fine. But you know, the, you know that eating well and moving is going to be beneficial to average person, wouldn't it make more sense that it would absolutely be necessary for someone who's fighting for their life? That's not the time where you say it because I, I have a, a, a cancer warrior patient now. She would have no problem with me talking about this because she's, everything is on Instagram. Um, her name is Kate, and she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer terminal, so much so that the doctors actually signed off on her life insurance. And they said, you know, now when she was first diagnosed and then given six months, by the way, when she was first diagnosed, she said to her GP, well, what do I do? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, uh, I'll stop drinking wine. I'll I'll cut out sugar. I've I've heard sugar is bad. And the the doctor said to her, no, Kate, this is the time when you go home and you have that wine and you eat that chocolate so that you can make memories with your (sighs) daughter. Right. Don't deny yourself all that. Now, this is when you need that. And that she, Kate never saw her again. And that's how she wound up finding me later on. But patients, when patients lose hope, that's one of the factors that spirals them into yeah death or somewhere, which is a really bad place because we are all animals who, you know, primarily we're after survival. When you take that away from the organism, when you take that away from the, the, the animal, what's that you, you take away someone's purpose. So if I do find that very distressing um, when patient, when doctors uh, are dismissive of that, because, you know, let me look personally, of course, I believe diet is very important, but let's just say there's a situation where diet isn't that important but anyway let's say diet wasn't that important the fact of the matter is you have a patient in front of you who's saying doc what should I do what can I do what can I do but you you give them a task you know even if it's okay well let's make sure that we're really getting that organ meat in or that you know making sure that the oil that we're going to have is going to be the good oil as opposed to the bad oil like swapping out rubbish oil for good oil isn't a uh, huge expense for some patients, but just help get them on board with being the masters of the universe, with with getting them at the helm and driving their own ship. You know? Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, yes. oh, and oh, I, yeah, like... I think <laughs> I think that it's not just the fact that if you lose hope, you're much less likely to exercise, to eat well, to spend time with family, to meditate, to you know manage stress that hope in itself gives you a sort of nocebo effect where that in itself could cause you harm.
1: Absolutely. 100%, which is why the psychological state of the patient is part and parcel of the fundamentals of health, right? Because you can, and I, you know, I'm not going to use words like manifest and all the rest of it, even though, yes, okay, that, that is something that, um, I talk to my patients about, but if, you know, if you wanted to talk to other doctors, you can't use words like that, right? right? But patients can shape their reality. We all know in hospital, the patients who are going to do better than the other patients. And it's the, the ones with gumption, the ones with get up and go, the ones who have a smile on their face, one who asks question, interested questions about their treatment, um, about this, their, their disease, about, you know, those who want to know those who don't harbor anger, those who aren't aggressive, those who have family around them. We know those are the patients that tend to do better. The blue zones is all about that. You know, the blue zones are about having support structures in place, having a sense of purpose, you know, meditating, all those sorts of things. I know that it's soft sciences, but just because it's soft doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And that's what doctors in general have to start realizing.
0: Yeah. You know, going off of the, um, the cancer story, I just interviewed, um, Dr. Thomas Seafried. and, you know, he's huge into metabolic therapies and using ketogenic diet and uh, glutamine inhibition. Um, and you know, that's, he, he was telling me about, because I have, I have a family member right now who had a, you know, was diagnosed with a brain tumor a few months ago. And, um, luckily this, um, oncologist that we went to, you know, didn't give you that, you know, you can't really do anything. Um, but instead, because, you know, I have a pretty good awareness of certain supplements and I've interviewed a lot of really smart people. I know like certain things that may help. And he was one of them. And, you know. I was like, I would go to the, some of the consults with um, this family member and um, I'd be like, okay, you know, is this kind of supplement something that, you know, would interfere with the, with the, you know, with the radiotherapy or the chemotherapy, or um, is this kind of, um, you know, dietary regimen, something that would interfere. And for the most part, they would say no. So they weren't saying that it's going to help, but they were saying, oh, no, probably won't hurt kind of thing, which is, you know, it's better than saying "Ah, that won't do anything at all.
1: Yes. Or saying no, that's dangerous, and it's like, oh, yeah. why is it dangerous? Or, well, we just don't recommend patients take supplements um, when right. and, and when we're doing cancer. Look, it absolutely, you know, there are four signals basically that the cells get, um, grow, die, housekeep, and sleep. So, sleep senescence—that's a tough one. Uh, housekeep is autophagy right? Grow is grow, die is die. So when you're trying to give the body die signals, chemotherapy or the rest of it, Volta Longo was all about that. You have to double down on your die signals. If that's, that's where you're at in your therapy, right? Which means patients are going to do better when they fast, when you're giving them die signals, because fasting is, it's a hormetic stress, but at, at the root of it, it's a die signal. Then when the patient comes out of that dye phase and they're into housekeeping phase, autophagy, you promote autophagy. That's why if an oncologist or a doctor says to a patient, there's nothing that you can do, don't bother with supplements and don't bother with diet, the patient goes, oh, okay. And then they go to the internet and they go to Facebook groups and they're going to do it anyway because they are fighting for their life. And you have to acknowledge that because you're causing more harm than good by dismissing your patient. Because what patients do is they go, oh, okay, Um, quercetin uh, quercetin is good. EGCG is good. Um, Vitamin C is good. This is good. That is good because, you know, the list is endless. And then before you know it, they're giving themselves housekeep signals or grow signals when they're meant to be giving dye signals and the other way around you know, and you're confusing things all over the place. And then these patients don't do well. And you go, oh, well, there you go. It's because they, they, it's because they did all that. Mm. Dangerous. It's like they did it because they were, they're, they're, they're trying to live. They're trying to survive. And you dismiss them and you didn't help. At least say, I don't know, which is something that I know doctors, including myself, find very hard to say sometimes. I don't know, but I recommend this person. Because there are definitely some um, hospitals that I've been to, in the, not so much here in Australia, but in the US, where they are all about the holistic care. They are very realistic about the fact that dying people are desperate people, and desperate people need more help, not less. Right. I, I care a lot about cancer specifically, because that is, you know, it's a, it's a very, very tough situation. And these are also the people who tend to be the most maligned, the ones who want to do something for themselves. They tend to be the most maligned in, certainly here in Australia. I don't know uh, in the US, but certainly here in Australia, they tend to be the ones who um, get given a lot of um, flack by by their oncologists.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I have... um... That interest in in cancer research is something that I've been forced into as well in the past few months. And uh something that really shocked me um about what Dr. Seafried told me is that some of the, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, if you have a different opinion, but what he said is that a lot of the the studies which show um, you know, success in chemotherapy or radiotherapy is kind of abysmal. It's like a month, two months, and that's what's called a success, adding a few months to a life.
1: Yep. Exactly. And, you know, they talk nothing about health span, right? Exactly. So you keep someone going for another month or so, but do they, are they, are they living in a way that allows them to do X, Y, Z, that they wanted extra time for anyway? No, a lot of time there's, you know, chained to a bed basically because they can't get out without vomiting or something like that. It's not a, it's not a pretty picture. And as long and and until medicine acknowledges our shortcomings and the fact that we, especially with a multifactorial, the, it's the epitome of a complex chronic condition like cancer until we realize that we have to be attacking it from a number of different um, angles. We're not going to get on top of it. You know, And, and the whole cancer industry is set up. So I shouldn't say industry because it makes it sound like I'm sort of conspiratorial about it or whatever. But the whole cancer thing is set up for that. right? It's like the intervention is this drug the population that they're going to trial that in, they'll recruit the healthiest people or the healthiest people that they can in that sick population. It gives you an extra month or six months and they hail it as success. And then before you know it, it's the next thing that gets shoved down people's throats and they're told, this is what you should do. Don't try anything else. Mm-hmm. Know your diet or supplements are going to work. So, you know, with the brain health center that I, Work at um, in Sydney, Singulum Health. Obviously, we see a lot of brain brain cancer patients because our CMO, the Chief Medical Officer for Singulum, is, is Charlie Teal. He's a celebrated neurosurgeon who essentially pioneered minimally invasive neurosurgery. Now, the when the patients see me, um, we do A to B, A to Z, and everything in between. In other words, it is okay. What's your diet doing your micronutrients? You know, when's your dice? When's the dye signal time? When's the growth signal time? When's the housekeeping? How are we going to get um, housekeeping up? I absolutely talk to patients about hyperthermia therapy, fever therapy. Mm-hmm. No patient with cancer gets away without at least knowing about hyperthermia therapy and inducement of heat shock proteins. Um, Patients are also told about pulse electromagnetic field therapy because it's, um, you know, uh, companies like uh, Voyager, oh no, what's the company called, the product is called Voyager, emulate therapeutics. So the idea of emulate therapeutics, and the first time I heard of them was when I was at a brain tumor summit in in New York in 2019, is... GBM and other brain tumors are really hard to get at because of lots, very few things cross the blood-brain barrier. And so what emulate therapeutics do, and they're not the only ones, there are lots of companies that are doing this and the science is exploding and people better start getting on board with this, is that um, everything has a unique uh, electromagnetic signature, essentially. And so do drugs. And if you capture that signature, then the patients wear a device around their head like a halo for about 22 hours a day or so. It pumps out the same signature as the drug and doesn't have to worry about the blood brain barrier. And they've, I think they've, they've done a few feasibility studies already, including one in Australia, interestingly enough. Um, but that's why I actually recommend HapB. So HapB, the device, is actually an emulate therapeutics daughter company and it has the exact same technology, right? Where you've got a certain uh, electromagnetic frequency that you're trying to emulate uh, and that it does have physiologic, physiological effects.
0: Yeah, I, I've actually seen um, a lot of the biohackers wearing um, the happy for more for like mood stability. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So because it's the, look, you know, when you have, let's call it a pulse electromagnetic field therapy device, right? The language that you use has to change depending on whether it's a medical device or a wearable, Mm -hmm. fun wearable. Right. But when you have the happy, or when I say my patients look, get that and Mm -hmm. get onto rest and recovery because that is going to be as close as you can get to a medical device, which is about healing. You can't use the word healing, right? In a non-medical device, basically. Right. And so that's how you sort of circumvent the, well, you've got to listen to the language that companies are using. They will sell you the same, a company will sell you the same drug in two different, formu- uh, same formulation, but two different packages. One will talk about, you know, a, a cure for something. And the other one, because they don't get FDA approval or TGA approval or some A approval and they'll call it something else, but it's actually the same thing. So you have to start getting to know the lingo of these companies too.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because we talked a little bit about, um, electromagnetic fields in a negative light that's how i I was initially introduced that you know it's something to pay attention to um, non-native emf like uh, you know laptops um, wireless devices um you know all that all, all that wireless stuff um but with pulse electromagnetic fields it's it's different um you know in terms of the modulation the type of frequency that it is can have a potentially positive or a negative effect
1: yeah and and that's the beauty of everything that we do right there is, it, it. Everything is not just positive. Everything is not just negative.
0: Mm-hmm. There
1: is, there are ways to leverage these things, and we're so clever. Apparently, we're able to figure this out. So, you know, I, I will use pulse electromagnetic field with patients, absolutely. Um, but I'll use like uh, 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 OmniPemf, you know, neuro rhythm device, or a Happy, or I'll talk about Emulate or something like that, because most of these devices have those things programmed into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm certainly no practitioner to go, well, I think about this Hertz would be good for this yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and it's the same with um, uh, hyperbaric oxygen, for example. So, you know, I've got a, um, a, a very standard understanding about hyperbaric oxygen. And so my brain health patients will do Low pressures for you know 90 minutes, for example, 60 minutes if, if that's all they want to do. But usually low pressures 1.3, 1.5 for about 90 minutes. Um, and they'll do that two, three times a week if they can afford it, once a week at a minimum, you know, when we're trying to get them over a certain period of, of their healing journey. Mm. Now, when we're talking about patients who are far more complex, where you know, like in cancer, for example, the higher the pressures, the more oxidative stress we're talking about, that forms part of the dye signal. That's when I'll then go, right, okay, this is getting a little bit complex for me. I refer them to um, I, uh, Dr. Scott Sher, for example, from, um, he's a hyperbaric internal physician in the US. So he's a great friend of mine with regards to, and and with regards to these sorts of things, he's absolutely where I would go. That's, my patients will see him. So it's also about knowing when to refer, you know, it's the right. same with um, fever therapy or hyperthermia therapy. You know, you've got to be really careful. It's a fantastic tool if you use it appropriately and it can cause some serious harm if you don't leverage what you can.
0: Wow. So when I originally wanted to have a an episode with you, I originally wanted to talk about longevity, but we've talked about oh, yeah, so many <laughs> so many amazing things so far um that honestly, I mean, I feel like, you know, we could have a part 2 sometime in the future and and get into all of that stuff because um we're uh, approaching the end. But before we do, um I I really wanted to ask you about vaccines, because obviously it's something that for reasons beyond my understanding has become very controversial, like ever since, you know, they came out. Um, and I've had a lot of different opinions here on the podcast, uh, different, you know, people I've interviewed have totally different opinions on them. So as I guess it's, it's a really big question, but as concise as possible, um, what are your thoughts on the COVID vaccines?
1: Well, um, so you know how antibiotics were one of our biggest triumphs? So are vaccines, I believe, right? The fact that we're so clever and we can leverage microbiology and you know, all that kind of thing. But uh, like everything else, it has to be in context of the patient. And the minute you stop looking at patients or at least even small patient populations as, um, and personalizing things for them, when you start broad stroking it across a population that's when you're going to lose a bit of fidelity mm-hmm. right so i think that my issue with vaccine mandates with the vaccine at the moment the fact that you know yes it's new and that new doesn't necessarily mean good or bad it's it, but it's new right we as far as safety data that's not something that you can um you, can't, you can you can't lie about that that's right. it's true because if you say to someone okay, uh, how safe is this? It's safe, fabulous. Can I see the safety data please? Because obviously there have been lots of things that have been said that was safe. Um, And then 20 years later or 10 years later, and then you can't say I have safety data to prove long-term effects, right? Anyway, um, uh, I personally will be getting a vaccine, um, but I'm getting a protein-based old school vaccine. So it, it's called COVAX. Um, it's actually an Australian-made vaccine. That's the only one, I believe, Australian one that's in the running worldwide. Um, so going back to the broad strokes, broad strokes anything is never a good idea, I think. But more importantly as well, in this for this particular issue that we're having, this pandemic, the fear that people have means that we need to be holding their hand more, which means that we need to be um, um, proving that we care about people's safety, because right now, I'm seeing a lack of reporting of side effects that I've in in some of the patients that are coming through my door. Um, And these are patients who, you know, they've seen other doctors, and they finally come to me, and they're sick, you know, do I think that, that the vaccine is causing, uh, illness across the population. You no, know, so far, I think the majority of people are doing pretty well, which is great, but it goes back to if patients are, are us, uh, scared, they need us to help them with more education, not belittle them, not, uh, uh, you know, harass them or insult them into getting a vaccine i don't it's bizarre kind of behavior you know if if anyway um i'm pretty sure well i'm hoping that i sort of circumvented that question enough
0: (laughs) no that was that was very well answered that's that's one of been one of my issues with the mandates um as well uh, especially now that there um there is some data coming out um although there's some that's not yet peer-reviewed but there is some data coming out that um, you know, having natural immunity is uh, on the average leads to less reinfection rates compared to just vaccine without infection. Yes, um, So there's, there's great, there's gray area. And, and like you said, it's, um, it's not a blanket statements are rarely the answer.
1: Yes. And especially, you know, if the, if the, if the government incentives or the government um, hope was for health, was for immunity, then they would seemingly care more about addressing metabolic health in the population, talking about people getting adequate sunshine, adequate vitamin D, those sorts of things, which nobody's, you know, they don't seem to be talking about that at all. And then the other thing is if health was truly the issue or immunity was truly the issue, then they would be um, backing, um, neutralizing antibody tests far more than they do. Mm -hmm. But right now, it seems to be just about vaccination, full stop, end of story, whether or not you've got natural immunity, whether or not you've seroconverted, you know, anyway, it just, I am trying to stay out of it as much as possible, um, because it's just such a minefield, especially in Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Um, Before we go, I have a few rapid fire questions that I like to ask guests at the end here. Um, But before I do that, where can people go and find out more about uh, you, um, your website and your social media?
1: Yeah. So my website and my social media, including Instagram where I'm the most active um, and Twitter is uh, Dr. D.R. Olivia, O-L-I-V-I-A, Lesla, L-E-S-S-L-A-R. So, at Dr. Olivia Lesler. My website um, is of course that as well, com, um, And that has all the different ways that people can get in touch with me, depending on where they are in the world.
0: Perfect. And I'll include a link to those in the show notes. Um, so number one, uh, what is the most important habit that you personally do every day to support your health?
1: Wow. Okay. A good bowel movement in the morning.
0: I think thats uh, that's a unique one. I haven't heard that one yet.: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, number two, what is the most important lesson that you've learned recently, whether it be from uh, a book or you know a life lesson, um, a study, anything?
1: Wow, well, okay. Um, I would think that it's, that it really does go back to basics. Um, I had a very difficult patient recently who had a very difficult. Illness. Um, And she was, you know, looking for the protocol, the next protocol. She'd been with a few other doctors with, and really it it needed to be stripped right back. Um, And that her expectations about getting well needed to be realigned, that it takes time and you have to slowly move the needle. And that's okay, because you don't want to be bouncing up and down up and down backwards and forwards so taking it nice and slow and getting back to basics will actually move the needle much faster in the long run for you than to be looking for these quick quick fixes and i i need to remind myself of that sometimes as well
0: finally what advice would you give your 20 year old self
1: you need to save your energy for that which deserves you whether it's relationships or fields of study um, yourself right I think I didn't spend enough time appreciating me working on me I was constantly trying to do things to please family or you know make other people happy and I, I didn't spend as much time on me um as I should have. And that was it, it maybe it belies a possible lack of yeah, maybe a lack of respect for myself back when I was a little bit younger because I didn't take the time, you know, to foster all the things that I'm now taking time to foster, including taking time to be still. I never did. I was always go, 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 go. Um yeah, yeah.
0: That's huge. That's something that I'm I'm learning now as well. Mm. Mm. yeah all right dr leslar thank you thank you very much for your time i appreciate the conversation
1: you're welcome thank you so much for having me
0: as always share this episode if you find it helpful and leave me a review on itunes i would be happy to know what you think about it as long as you leave me a five-star review thank you for listening and see you in the next one